So it is a very complex system. The software we built from ground up wasn't like there was something existing on the shelf that we can take and, you know, customize. So everything about Simplify was, you know, really built from the ground up for the industry. And, and I think that's why we were able to find our niche. I wouldn't say easily, but relatively strong ways. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hello, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm excited to welcome Marion Marathonson to the show today. Marion, Welcome. Love to get your insights today. Please do your own introduction. You have a lot of things going on. Let's focus on wherever you want to focus. It's nice to be here and, and I appreciate you guys having me on. So as uh, David said, Marion Marathasen, based out of Denver, um, originally from a little island called Sri Lanka, came to the States when I was eight, grew up in Kansas of all places, chose island to the middle of the country, which was interesting. Did the typical growing up, go to college, come out of college, and what do you do next? And so I spent about seven years total in corporate America. And I'd say for the better part of the last 15 plus years, I've been starting, building and selling tech companies. Did tech for you know better part of my early career. My brother and I owned a tequila company, sold that in 2015, and then got into cannabis in 2015. And most of my kind of entrepreneurship has been in the tech space. And now, currently at the moment, I'm highly involved in about five different companies. Simplifier, which is the leading regulatory and operational compliance company in the cannabis industry, is where I spend most of my time as a CEO and co-founder. I also serve on a few different boards, companies ranging 
from tech companies, a software dev shop called Salon Solutions, the largest cannabis network called LeafWire, also a new dating app that's coming out called Ilios, and then um, also on the board of a publicly traded company called CEA or Cerna. And so a lot of time being spent in the cannabis industry, particularly, but also around tech, because that's my background. I'm invested in about 22 companies in total at the moment. And majority of those are in cannabis, just because that's where I've been spending the last six uh, plus years. And wherever the wind blows, something looks exciting, I, I follow that, go in that direction. I know that story. You know, I had to quip that most of us in tech at one time or another get into tequila and <laughs> cannabis, but I, I don't know if it typically follows the, the same profit path as yours. <laughs> I'm interested in knowing about the cannabis industry as just the growth potential, obviously being enormous and it's cutting edge of the, the whole compliance thing is a really interesting angle. Yeah. This is not something that I have spent a lot of time digging into. Yeah. And I bet a lot of people are on the sidelines thinking about the business potential of the new industry and like the regulatory environments and all those things. Maybe a primer would be helpful since you have your feet in yeah. the space. It's, we joke at Simplify, we're like the least sexiest part of the cannabis industry, because I think most people, when they think of cannabis, they think the plant and, and growing of it and dispensaries and all these things. And we're more of the picks and shovels and we're kind of behind the scenes. And so again, when you think Simplify, it's a rec tech company. So primarily most of our staff are lawyers and policy folks and the other uh, half are engineers. And then you have a, a suite of kind of uh, executives. And so, you know, we primarily exist to ensure, at least when we started back in 2016, to ensure that licensed operators have a way of staying compliant with all the regulations that are changing on a state and local level. So there's basically, if you picture a licensed operator in the cannabis industry, he's a small business owner that not only has to run their business, but now you've got this arduous, massive task ensuring that their business is compliant to regulations that are constantly changing and evolving. And this is what's, I think, fascinating in, in, a, in emerging industries that it's changing Almost now it's gotten a little bit better. It's changing back then, probably on a monthly basis. And, and so that's where we started off. We said there has to be a better way for these operators, uh, you know, to stay compliant. And so we, we're a SaaS uh, product. We started off with a self auditing tool that has like SOP bundles that we extrapolate from the regulations, state and local. And then we have a product called, that's built into it. That's a smart cabinet that helps them keep all their documentation and and applications and when to file new applications, all these things are moving parts. And, and so that's where we started off over the last few years, just given the nature of what we we're focusing on, we've had an opportunity to get uh, into other areas of the industry or to better put, to service other companies that are helping the industry, right? For example, insurance, government, financial institutions. And so we've kind of have evolved into getting our tentacles in a lot of different areas of the industry that are really vital, I would say. But, you know, look, this is still a very new industry. Obviously, we're 30, 33 states and growing in the U.S., but, you know, we get a lot of folks internationally approaching uh, us and saying, hey, we're also looking to get into cannabis and how do we do this, right? And so I think this is a global movement that uh, has a long way to go. But, you know, when you look at revenue projections and 
and whatnot, or the projections as a whole for the industry, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. And, and I think um, that's what's getting a lot of people excited and, and into the industry at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And the confusion around it, I know just keeping up with like standard regulatory filings for a startup in whatever, Tennessee, you know, where I'm at, like all the time, we're like, I don't even know if we filed the right stuff. And I think that it must be so cumbersome for somebody who wants to get into, you know, a new and changing industry that is up against all kinds of stuff, uh, let alone the whole, like, what's going to happen from the federal government? Like that, that'll fundamentally change all kinds of things. Well, you know, even when we came into, uh, sorry to interrupt David, even when, when COVID came around, I think there was a lot of fear of what was going to happen uh, about cannabis and unfortunately the sales i think anytime you have people that are stressed or you know they're happy or sad vices tend to take off right and and i think uh, as we've seen now, yeah now you just need to bring it to me on my couch <laughs> exactly <laughs> the cannabis alcohol all these things that you know have, have really uh, skyrocketed but anyway sorry to interrupt no, you know, it's like Netflix yes. and uh, cannabis and Funyuns, yeah. right? Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a tremendous amount of, of shift. And then the polarity across the, the states has got to be outrageous. And you, as a business owner, you off, would probably end up in the spot where you're advising your consumer on what you can or can't do, you know, with what you're buying from this store or delivery or, or whatever. I mean, it's just... It's just so complex. How did you even think you wanted to be involved in that level of complexity? Yeah, I wish I can take credit, David, for Simplify, but I can't. There's a law firm called Vicente Cedarberg that's based here in Denver. The three partners just happen to be friends of mine, and they were extremely instrumental in legalization of Amendment 64 here in Colorado, which legalized recreational cannabis. And so, you know, I happened to run into one of the partners and I'd just gotten out of the tequila <laughs> business and they're like, what are you doing these days? I was like looking for kind of the next big thing. And so the concept of what was to become Simplify was really something they had dreamt up. You know, having been on the forefront legalization, I think they realized this wasn't just going to be a Colorado or a California or Washington movement early on, but that this is going to be a national movement and then global. And they had this idea about how can we create a SaaS product that can, you know, help create efficiencies, but also help with costs, right? Because back in the early days, a lot of these operators were, had to have attorneys on retainer continuously. And, you know, we're talking, that's pretty expensive, right? And so that's how I got involved as actually one of the first investors in the company and they pitched me on what their vision was and they just you know we're looking to try and productize it and that was my background and so here we are almost going on six years later this well i would love to take credit it wasn't my idea i just uh the techie <laughs> at the right spot at the right time yeah yeah there's a tech guy who knows about uh sin products so call him <laughs> and i guess where it makes me think there's been a lot of attempts in the law tech space that haven't played out as well. Where's that line to successfully move into sort of reg tech versus legal technology, and many of, of whom have crashed and burned on let's make dealing with a lawyer easier. So it's, you actually made that 
that turn successfully. Uh, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, again, in the early days, there were probably very few lawyers or, or law firms that knew anything about cannabis, right? So Vicente Cedarberg was probably one of a handful of law firms that were practicing in the space. And so, one, the cost factor was so high, even for law firms to send out an attorney to go do audits, because they had a checklist from the state and local. And you send out an attorney and we're talking two, three thousand dollars know, for every audit. And that's just not sustainable. And I think Simplify just found its niche primarily through the fact that there was a shortage of attorneys that knew the state regs and local regs, because it's so very different, right? State to state and even on a locality basis. So there was a shortage of attorneys and then two, just the cost factor. And I think what the initial vision of um, Simplify was that, okay, we have a bunch of attorneys behind the scenes that, because we don't give legal advice. We're again, at the end of the day, a SaaS company, but we, you know, extrapolate their knowledge. We take all these regs, simplify it down to a 12th grade reading level, turn them into yes or no audit questions and provide the citations for the people that really want to understand more. And so it is a very complex system. Uh, the software we built from ground up, there wasn't, it wasn't like there was something existing on the shelf that we can take and, and, you know, customize. So everything about Simplify was, you know, really built from the ground up for the industry. And, and I think that's why we were able to find our niche. I wouldn't say easily, but relatively strong ways because there's just a massive gaping hole there that we had to fill. And then, then the idea was, how do we price it? What are the pieces that we offer with this? And all the you know typical things that startups go through. But here we are, coming on six years later, and you know, in this industry, probably like many others, you see so many companies come and go, and staying, basically standing the test of time. Simplify is one of those few companies that's been around now for a long time. I was just in Benzinga, Miami, and one of the CEOs of another company is like, "Hey, we've made it. You know, we've." <laughs> Almost six years later, our companies are still here. That makes us very real. And so it's very much a need, David, what we do. So we feel a need for the industry. And and now, obviously, it's not just the operators, as I said, governments and insurance and financial institutions. These are all key elements of ensuring that the industry continues to move forward. And anyway, long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. And how did you, from a problem-solving standpoint, you know, as a founder, a complex problem to solve but anybody that's waded through any regulations of any sort knows that these things don't break down into nice decision trees where it's it's either this or it's this and next move to the next stage there's a million forms and there's all kinds of stuff you need to keep up with and things that operators obviously can't understand which is the, you know bring it down to the 12th grade reading level. But I have to imagine that the illogical nature of, of these things makes for interesting points where you're, we are trying to derive it into, is it this or is it that? And maybe there's not a, a nice, clean answer in the middle of that problem well, tree. Well, there isn't. I, I would say for Simplify, probably just like any other startup, we struggled early on, right? I mean, one thing we did was we went and sat down with the actual license operators. And again, this is where that law firm was very instrumental because they had a bunch of clients, right? In Colorado, they're like, hey, can you give Marion and his team some time and just tell them where your pain points were? 
So while we were trying to build that initial infrastructure, not just from a technology standpoint, but then we had the content to contend with as well. I think just any other startup, a very long evolutionary process, right? It's like, okay, when you're trying to, here's how we think this needs to go. And then six months later, someone's, oh my gosh, like that's not working the way we want it to. Can you do this? So even now our product roadmap is evolving drastically. However, the good news is the fundamentals of what we do, we've got it down. You know, there were about three competitors when we first launched. Now at this point, good for us, bad for them, I suppose. We basically are unmatched in terms of depth and breadth of what we do. I think there are our main competitors just to law firms. And there's a few companies that kind of touch on certain areas that we also cover, but for the most part, we seem to have pulled away. I mean, if you just take into account, David, at this point, I think 15 or 16 million words of regulations have been ingested by us and the, and the technology itself has evolved massively. I mean, we've got close to 30 engineers that are constantly working on this product to make it better. And the industry itself is evolving, right? Back when we first started, it was a lot of single operators, right? One location and you know, it's mom and pop. Now there's so much M&A going on. There's what you call MSOs, multi-state operators, and, and they're gobbling up all the smaller ones. And so we even had to completely, not completely, but we had to adapt our technology over the last few years because there's more MSOs and they're now more of our client base. I guess my point is it's a very evolutionary process, just like any other startup, but we've certainly made our mistakes early on. And then you, I think the key element is to try and, and, uh, you know, rectify those and, and learn from them and, and move as quick as you can. I think that's what makes, in my opinion, startups so beautiful, right? Versus big corporate companies, because it's like, oh, something's not working. Then you have meetings and meetings about what to fix versus, you know, being very fluid and nimble like startups are. Yeah. Talk about that uh, mistake making learning process, because I do believe that rolls off the tongue easily once you have a haircut like you and me. But that is not an easy thing to do and learn at the beginning. We can all read the books about agility and whatever, but like scaling and having multiple humans working on a problem absolutely moves in the opposite direction from, you know, simplicity and, and agility there. So can you distill any of that? But I would love for the, the audience to try to learn that thing, if nothing else. There's so many different areas, but what I can tell you is I think it's the age old issue where you build a product, you build it under certain, you know, kind of guidance and premise that potential customers are telling you, here's what we need. But then, you know, sales goes out and then they come back like that, that just didn't work at all. They said, we're missing this and this. And so I think, you know, while it's a cliche of being nimble and agile and doing all these things, I think. I think that the what we followed was, okay, we can't take on everything at time one, right? Because we were not just only building a product, but we were trying to refine and accommodate customers. So it was really like we would have sessions where, okay, if 10 of our clients say they need this feature, then we'll add it to the, because you can't be anything, you know, everything to everyone. So it was really about, and this is where I think having, the real knowledge of the industry came into play because even now today, David, new entrants coming into the industry that don't really understand or have the fundamentals of, of cannabis and they come in, they get chewed up and spit back out. And I think that's where having kind of the lawyers that really knew the space 
helped because they're like, okay, you're looking at longevity. Here are the areas that have to remain, right, in terms of like the regulations. And this is the key elements. And then, you know, you take on the components that the operators are asking for, for efficiency or whatever that they're looking for. But look, I, you know, we can probably, you can have probably 10 segments of podcasts just around how to fix that. But I think from our perspective, what we did was just really listen to the customer, which that's what everyone should be doing. But internally trying to digest and understand what we can handle, what we couldn't. Because I think early on with startups, and we've fallen into that early on as well, is that you try and accommodate anything and everything for your clients. And if you try and do that, you're just going to get overwhelmed and you're going to just get bogged down and you can't do that. So six years later, we've then found a very methodical way of saying, okay, let's address these areas that are core. Then for the operators, we'll continue to add as we can. While in the meantime, how else can we, what other areas of the industry can we get our tentacles in that makes us that much more stickier and vital, right? Now as a company, I think the the thing we focus on is how can we add so much value and stickiness that even if a competitor comes in, that we're just so embedded into the industry that no one can kick us out. And I think that's ultimately where you want to get to. And I think I'm not saying anything novel here, but <laughs> that's fact. It is. And the, the stickiness swings both ways. You find products that sort of particularly on the enterprise scale will do lock in, which is just to say it's difficult to move. But I don't want to stay there. I just, you know, can't <laughs> undertake the cost of getting out of this software that sucks. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. So that stickiness can imply there that this is so valuable. Why would I ever try to switch to something? And that's a defensible business model. Yeah. And I think, again, with Simplify the Way, compliance is really about historical records and doing, you know, the same thing over and over again to ensure that your business is compliant, right? And the way Simplify being a SaaS product is like every week, every month, every year that you know a client uses our software, there's so much historical data that's now within their cloud package of Simplify that they just don't leave. And a lot of our MSOs, when they as they acquire more and more locations every month, they just add new locations on the system. And so the product has, has just come a long way in terms of usability. You said before made the reference that I wanted to point back to, you know, the picks and shovels, which is uh, if for anybody that's not familiar, sort of that classic analysis of the gold rush or the nobody actually got rich digging up gold. The people who got rich from the gold rush were selling picks and shovels and food and all the, the things that are running casinos or what have you. And I think that's right that anybody that can look for a, a market opportunity and say what enduring needs are going to be there no matter what, or at least is there a playing field where there can potentially be enduring needs. And then it gets you to going out and doing that customer discovery. And I often find that people mistake sometimes the opinions that they ought to take from the marketplace, which is to say customer and prospect are not the same thing. There's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions and will never pay you any money to implement them and and won't be a user. And then you go, okay, so I love that thing you said, we got a bunch of ideas and then we sent our salespeople out when something they tried and the sales feedback 
was really valuable. And I have a fear that the sort of death of sales type of SaaS, self-serve, super margin type of vibe is swinging a little bit too far the wrong way. Now that's self-serving. I'm a sales guy. But I can tell you that from the standpoint of what prospects tell salespeople is a hell of a lot different than what happens on a customer discovery type of call. So I, I don't know if you have anything to offer. No, you know, that. that's the age old thing there, right? Sales and ops always clashing, right? It's just like sales wants to, and ops feels like sales just wants to give it all away and promise the world. And, you know, sales feels like ops is just always being difficult, making their job harder. And for us, you know, it probably just like any other company, what we talk about is like, hey, we're on the same team, rowing in the same direction. So let's try to find a, a you know, a common ground here. But I, overall, I think from our standpoint, uh, where we are now, it's changed quite drastically when we first started, just because our brand is recognized, our name is recognized, the largest operators in the space you simplify at this point. And when you first start off, is who's your, where are your clients? Oh, we don't have any yet, but we were hoping you're the first one. Go fly a kite. It's okay. Let's skip to the part where you become the first one. Yes. And we'd really be happy to have you underwrite a bunch of features. Exactly. Shows. And right. so now it's very different. And and so you know, we still do have a little bit of you know push and pull between sales and ops. And that's because now we're rolling out new products and we're trying to accommodate new types of clients. So it's almost like the life cycle has started over again with government clients and financial institution clients, but which is great, right? This is a good problem to have. But I, I think, again, the best way to diminish that is just like literally every week, remind everyone like we are on the same team. So you know, let's not look at it as sales versus ops. Let's look at it as like, how can we help one another, right? I mean, again, it's all the cheesy things that probably every, everyone say, and, and I'm saying it, but it's, uh, it's very true, at least for us. Yeah, it comes down to those, you know, core values and kind of, you know, rolling is rowing in the same direction and sort of all of those things. But I think that's absolutely right. And viewing business fundamentally as a system that you, know, you don't have this sort of well, us versus them inside your company. I think salespeople who come out of ops are often very effective. We can go, we're not going to go out there and say yes to a bunch of crap that we know is impossible or unprofitable as it becomes that shared knowledge of why did you build this? What were you trying to come up with? Okay, cool. Let's go and package that in a little bit different way. It's not fundamentally a different piece of the software, but we need to talk about it differently. And then of course, the marketing is in the middle going, duh, we told you. You know, you know one of the things we actually do, David, I think that helps. And I should have mentioned this earlier is where, you know, I feel like oftentimes sales and ops are in their own little silos, right? Within Simplify, we actually have ops people sitting on sales calls just so they can understand how hard it is to do what that team does and vice versa. So we have salespeople listening on the long list of things that are going on in product or ops because then they need to understand when they promise something, here's the whole group of people that it affects and here's the list that they have to work on. And how much time and energy it takes. And so I think when you have, even if it's once a month or you know twice a month where you have people overlapping from different departments to see the amount of work that it takes, even reg affairs, right? It's like when sales is like to the biggest MSO client, oh, you need us in 
Connecticut, great, we'll have that done next month. And Reg Affairs is, do you understand all the local jurisdictions that are in that state? Plus, you need to get the state. So the good news is, I think we've gotten quite a bit of exposure on both sides of the spectrum. And I think now that gives a lot of respect and appreciation on every aspect, right? So that uh, sales understands what these guys and girls go through in, in Reg Affairs and Ops and reg affairs understands how much beating up the sales team gets. And so it just, it's, I think that's really important. And so we do spend a good amount of time doing that. Is that your job as the CEO integrator primarily? Well, I think it's part of the kind of the culture we've built because I did notice that in just like any other company uh, in the past, I think just about every CEO will tell you that, that there is always that combativeness between ops and sales. And so kind of saw that happening here and we we're like, okay, how do we help people understand that? And so, for example, our head of biz dev and sales, I mean, she is, she understands regs extremely well. It's almost like she's a lawyer, right? So that's because she spent so much time with the reg affairs folks and just understanding all the states that we're in, that she has a massive, massive appreciation for what ops and reg affairs does. And now we're trying to get that team a little bit more exposure into all the crap that you know she and her team uh, go through just because it's just very quickly people get forget, oh my gosh, why did they promise all this when we have all this going on? Well, because it's a massive client and it's good to have them, right? So, right, right, yeah, because you can't get the deal done unless you yeah. give something on and, and just go. Yeah, I know that's gonna suck, yeah. but does everybody like millions of dollars? <laughs> and one of the things we do to yeah. keep people motivated and incentivized is just what everyone within Simplify have options. We did that last year, and so not only salaries, but we want everyone to feel like they have a skin in the game, and it's a lot of alignment and things, a lot of motive, trying to motivate people and. You know, COVID really did a number, David, right? I mean, what is, what is it? 11 million people walked off the workforce. And, and cannabis is even tougher because if you have experience in the industry, it's like everyone tries to poach and everyone wants to pay you two, three times what you're getting paid now. And so fortunately for us, we've got uh, a very good set of really loyal folks, but it, it's not easy. But if it was, then everyone would be an entrepreneur and everyone would be starting a company. And I think uh, that's what makes it so right. fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about the history of your entrepreneurship. You know, like when you become this sort of serial founder and then even, oh, I'm an investor. I think everybody like has that view of how maybe romantic that is. And that's so exciting. And you know, but when you put together that that twenty year story in your head, how does that shake out to you? I'll, I'll tell you. I think there are many a times in my kind of path that I'm like, I need to just go get a nine to five job because I, I I did do that for about seven years after college or five six years. I'm not. I'll tell you that it's I've driven limos, I've um, bartended, I've been bouncer, I've worked at night shift at, at front desk hotels, right? I mean, you name it, I've done it all, right? Probably just, just about every entrepreneur has. And I think it's easy now having gotten here, but like I said, the reality of the matter is for many years, I <laughs> there's a lot of self-doubt because you, you think you have the best idea, you start it and then it just takes forever. And then years later, it just crashes and you're just crushed and you're like, 
oh my gosh, like what happened here? Going through this emotions of post-mortem in your head as to what did I do wrong, blah, blah, while you're working now a nine to five job. And it's just, you're just resetting back constantly. And I think that is probably the hardest part about being an entrepreneur. And, and for me, when I look back, I think, so, I, you know, over the years, I used to do a lot of seminars on entrepreneurship at universities and startup companies and just don't do it as much anymore. But in my mind, there's what I call the three P's, right? Patience, passion, and persistence. And I think those are really important in that, one, if there's a, if there's a passion about something you're trying to solve, that certainly helps. And patience is like something I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs don't have. I certainly didn't have it. It's like, I started, I'm like, oh, I'm going to start this company, my first one, right? I'm going to start it three years. I'm going to get a great exit. I'm going to have all this money and I'm going to, nope, didn't work that way. And so patience and persistence goes along hand in hand. And when I look back at my path, I think it's just a lot of luck, a lot of just hard work. And I think the biggest thing now that I didn't know, because I didn't go to an Ivy League school, I didn't uh, have a network of the friends or whatnot, it was a lot of luck and, and trying to network. I just remember my first, gosh, five to 10 years, just emailing people. And this is part of LinkedIn. You know, it's just, I'm 46 now, but just trying to talk to people about, hey, I'm looking for raising money. I'm looking for an investor. And it's just like one person after the next and no after no. And you have to just have a lot of thick skin, I think, at that point. And, you know, like I said, it just, I was like, I knew the type of lifestyle I wanted. It was never really about the money. It was about the freedom of if I was able to create something that I loved and build something and, and down the road have the freedom of being able to not be you know, beholden to three weeks of vacation or a nine to five or whatever the case is. It really was about trying to solve problems and, and, and build things, right? And I don't know, I'm rambling on, but I, I think... The, the biggest thing for me, David, when I look back is just, I, I think, just hard work, luck, and just passion. I think giving up was just not, a, was not an option for me, even when it looked like I should, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so here I am. But it does sound like at, at times you either were forced to fail forward or just said that. And I would guess, because I, I have over time of doing things that seemed like a good idea at the time, you do learn the very difficult skill of knowing when to pull the plug. And man, the first time I did that, I mean, just like, it's just like my whole identity went down the toilet, but I got back on the horse and went, and I did go get a job at, at somewhere because I had to pay the bills after I just flushed <laughs> $100,000 down the toilet. Well, you know, and I think so much of entrepreneurship is also like gambling because it's, I remember thinking with my third company I'd started, I'm like, okay, I think if I do this one more thing, it might spark this whole whatever, right? And and you just, and then you're like, okay, what if I gave up now and then next month someone comes along and they actually see the value of it. So it is so much like gambling and that's why it's, it's such a tough thing. And I, I'll tell you quickly, if you want to hear, or if you're uh, listeners, I was probably about $800 in my bank account. My rent was 600 bucks. And I'm like, okay, this, and I'd probably given four years into this company. And I'm just like, this is just not working. And long and short of it is, I was like, okay, I'm literally going to go get a job. 
And this article had gotten published maybe three or four days prior to this thought that I was in that one moment. And again, I, this is LinkedIn time. I get this message from a guy on LinkedIn that says, hey, I really like this article of this company I read and read and of yours. And I'm interested in long and short of it is literally within a month from that day, I had that thought that company went into a transaction which took completely changed the course of my life, right? That's the part that's really hard because when I think back now, that was probably a one-off chance because I really don't know how often that happens, but it certainly happened to me. But that's what keeps entrepreneurs on the hook, I think. It's just, oh, what if? And it's a tough one. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because you just you just always thinking, oh, I'm just if we could just one more sale, we're right there, we're so close to the edge. Uh, you know, oh, it's just gonna. I always think of it like those games at the the carnival or the arcade where there's the quarters on the shelf, and you just keep pumping the quarters in because man, there's that pile of quarters at the end, and, and like I'm gonna knock that pile of quarters off sometime. <laughs> and sure enough, it, once in a while, the pile of quarters falls off. It's hard to walk away. It is. It is. And, and especially because it becomes like, it's like your own baby, right? For a lot of these entrepreneurs, that company, it's like a child. It's like a family member. And, and because you've invested so much energy and love into it, it's really hard to say, you know what? Yeah, this is just not working. And then the fact of the matter is now, I think there's probably a lot of companies that have come and gone. Now, if you potentially bring in some outside eyes, some outside help and be like, hey, what am I doing wrong here? Because I think early on, it's tough when in your startup, when you don't have the resources or the money or people or money or network to even go and say, hey, can you come help me? Give me a you know second eye or third eye on this and tell me what you think I'm doing wrong. As companies and I think entrepreneurs mature, you now have that luxury of doing that. But Back in the early day, I certainly didn't. And I'll say, when you invite those people, because I did, I just didn't listen to them. To this day, I can put myself back in 2008, sitting at a conference table with a mentor who was telling me I was out of my mind, do not do that thing. And I had to go do it anyway. He just didn't get it. And I still lament that million. But I think it's, it's listen to people. And I also say the solace, and tell me if this resonates with you, the solace of having had attempts and failures is that over time you become a people collector. And if you look at your, your current teams and networks and experiences and investors, like it's very often people that were somehow involved in a previous project. And I, I think if I could point to anything, it would be that my team is based on people I collected over the period of not doing so hundred percent that's same here and and i think because it really does come down to just people and and who as they like to say and that you just can't emulate in your first startup as a first entrepreneur right because it's i think oftentimes people want to come in as an entrepreneur and they get their startup and you want all this you want to get exactly to where seasoned people whether it's failure through failure or successes have gotten to there's that component of luck but you just can't amass that amount of people that you build trust with, whether it's investors or colleagues or whatnot, in your first startup. It just doesn't happen unless, you know, you bring in family and friends and that's a whole different, you know, <laughs> topic to talk about. Yeah, I burned all those on the first <laughs> effort. So, yeah. 
Now they just say good luck. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's this mind reading type of thing that starts to really be a, a beneficial point of leverage. When you work with the same people, you can implement quickly and you've had those same experiences and you don't have to go through the the genesis of like all the things. And you've got a folder full of like, hey, remember that financial model we built for that thing that sucked, but it's still useful. You could pull that out and and there's that leverage of one of my current companies, the logo, the brand, and everybody loves this thing. And I just laugh because it's like, hey, remember when we did that stupid thing that we paid somebody for a logo? Go dust that off and change the letters. And it was literally that. And everybody's just like, well, I'm glad I invested in that, you know, 10 years ago and, and it didn't go anywhere. So. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's all, I mean, that's the thing, right? When you look back, it's all such a learning experience and just all the tidbits that you pick up. Oftentimes I'm like, what did I really learn over the last 20 years? And like, because you can't really point to one thing, but if you're put in that situation where you know, someone says something like, oh, yes, I actually, yes, I do have this thought that's stored back there somewhere. And uh, then I, yeah, what I say, experience is what uh, allows you to recognize a mistake when you make yes. it again. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. We could do this all day. You're a lot of fun, Marion. I know we're running up against our yes. time here. I'm sure a lot of founders are resonating. I know I am. So what are what would be the best channels for folks to reach out if they just want to have a chat with you? You know, they can uh, reach, find me on LinkedIn. They can drop me an email. I try and I love, I still love networking. I still love connecting with people, unfortunately, these days. I've got two young kids. I started late in this uh, kid business. I have a four-year-old and one to turn six. And my wife and my parents live next door, so... Don't have the amount of time as I would love to to continue that networking like I used to. But yeah, people can always reach out through LinkedIn. I'm the most active on there. I'm too old for all the other social channels, I think. But but LinkedIn is probably the best. Uh, yeah. But I appreciate you having me on Fantastic. here, David. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And if anybody needs to deal with cannabis regulations, <laughs> Simplify is the place to go. <laughs> thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming out, Mary. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.